Violence has rocked the globe in the past few weeks. An escalation of violent repression and missile launches between Israel and Palestine spread across the country and the occupied territories, creating unprecedented destruction and a dreadful death toll. And in Hong Kong, where China has been increasing its influence, the government has indicated they will be introducing fake news legislation, a move that could see a further crackdown on activists. Also, protests in Colombia over a tax reform evolved into a full-scale confrontation between citizens and the police. Colombia has been hard hit by the pandemic, worsening an already difficult situation tried by over 50 years of civil war. Now the people demand better solutions from a government that they think is absolutely out of touch with its starved people's everyday struggles. And finally, a crackdown in West Papua by the Indonesian authorities where West Papuans continue to fight for independence with the support of many Pacific nations. The Indonesian military has been accused of human rights violation in a bid to suppress any nationalistic sentiment. Hello everyone, welcome to the new podcast segment by Human Rights Pulse, where every other week we will address the biggest human rights news and events. I'm Laura. And I'm Nigel. The past week has been rocked by protests and demonstrations in Colombia, which have soon escalated into widespread violence and depression by the armed forces, descending the country into total chaos once more. Laura, let's understand what's really going on in the streets. Yeah, well, you said it right. The situation has really escalated. Everything started with a ruling that approved the tax reform plan presented by President Ivan Duque, which aimed at compensating pandemic-related losses for the national economy. And the reform would have increased taxes over essential and everyday goods and services, while it would allegedly have kept in place pandemic-related subsidies. But this was not enough for the population, uh, which believes the government is too distant from the realities of ordinary citizens and is doing nothing to improve their conditions. Yes, so marches and protests started on the 28th of April, but are still ongoing, and several accidents have also occurred. I believe around 42 people have been killed, hundreds have been injured in the confrontation, and 168 are still missing. Laura, the army has not held back here, is it? No, absolutely. Many have actually lamented a disproportionate use of force on the army's end and a strong repression of protests. But this is a, an actually long-standing problem for Colombia, as reported by Human Rights Watch in 2020. Over 2,000 cases were opened at the Attorney General's office on alleged unlawful killings by the military, which resulted in around 900 convictions of over 1,600 soldiers. And the people of Colombia are not new to violence. Their country has been torn by civil war for 52 years, a conflict that has, on paper, ended in 2016 with a peace accord, but that in reality is, is still ongoing. And what have become known as FARC dissident groups are still active in parts of the country, and so are members of the National Liberation Army and other paramilitary groups who continue to abuse the local population and threaten human rights defenders, journalists and civil society leaders. Also, and violence has been uh, exploited by former President Alvaro Uribe to justify the actions of the military. In a tweet, he has actually said that he stood behind the army, who was in the front line against terrorist violence in the streets these days. 
Well, the tweet was soon taken down as it violated community guidelines and incited terrorism. Something that we've heard before, right? Yeah, but most of the reasons behind those protests have already been heard, unfortunately, all across the world, especially in the past few years. Police brutality is only one of them. Indigenous groups have also taken to the streets, lamenting the suppression of their rights. And in Cali, they took down a statue of Sebastián de Balcazar, a 16th century Spanish conquistador, because... To them, it was a reminder of the slavery and genocide that their people had to endure. And also economic discontent and corruption. They, they all fueled the anger of the population. Yeah, that's one thing I would have mentioned. President Duke actually retired his tax reform plan on Sunday, May the 2nd, followed by the resignation of the Col- Colombia finance minister. But this does not seem to have satisfied the population, which is still protesting against the government. Of course, the situation encompasses far more issues than the fiscal reform. This is an outcry for better governance, for more consideration of their needs. Exactly. The country has many problems that have not been properly addressed by the government. 8.2 million people have been displaced as a result of the civil war, 75,000 only in 2019, and legal progress in land restoration has been extremely slow. And then comes the economic dimension. During the pandemic, Colombia's GDP has dropped by 6.8% and the number of people living in poverty has grown by 2.8 million. That is around 43% of the population, while the economy has shrank 7% in, in 2020. Corruption is also widespread and justice is very slow. And these all contributed to anger and already frustrated population, resulting in the current state of things. But the government has declared its openness to dialogue and cooperation. This means that we are somehow moving towards the end of this protest and maybe even a solution to the country's more pressing issues. Yeah, that's something to look forward to. Maybe this will be the right wake-up call for, for the government. And the people have understood the power of the streets and, and not even the pandemic is holding them back. Let's move on to Hong Kong, where Chief Executive Kerry Lam declared a few weeks ago that the government was working towards a legislation against fake news aimed at fighting disinformation. Well, Hong Kong has seen a sharp authoritarian turn in since 2019, since it had its own go at protests, and many journalists and activists have been jailed for speaking up and criticizing the government. But this bill... They're still in the research process, right? Has anybody predicted what it is going to look like? Well, currently we don't know what the bill will look like, but essentially what this might mean is more media freedom restrictions in Hong Kong for sure. Already Reporters Without Borders ranks Hong Kong 80th out of 180 countries in terms of press freedom. We have seen that since the imposition of the national security law last year, it seems Hong Kong is increasingly coming under the firm grip of Beijing. It has been reported that Radio Television Hong Kong has begun removing some of its YouTube and social media channels, where also Radio Television Hong Kong journalist Bai Choi is being arrested and sent to prison for simply doing his job. For this legislation might have deep effects on press freedom in Hong Kong, but also the international media landscape. Yeah, it seems like part of the criticism has been directed at how foreign governments are handling the situation. And as said by Mrs. Lan, their research will be also addressing the role played by the international community in spreading, and, and I quote, inaccurate information, misinformation, hatred, and lies on the social media. 
That is a bold claim, especially since it refers to the alleged damage suffered by the population. Precisely. In fact, Mrs. Lam states that the introduction of such legislation has been inspired by how certain countries within the international community have ended fake news. For instance, countries like Cambodia, Singapore and Malaysia have passed similar legislation to keep fake news. However, the main concern in Hong Kong, especially raised by activists, is that this is a tool employed by Beijing to muzzle dissent in Hong Kong. Yeah, plus the national security law that was passed in 2020 has also been used to repress opposition in Hong Kong and increase the regulation of media. And, and just recently, on May the 6th, activist Joshua Wong was sentenced to 10 months in prison for taking part in a memorial wake last June for the victims of Tiananmen Square. So there is a reasonable base for concern regarding this legislation and how this could become yet another tool for pro-Beijing authorities to silence dissent and activists and repress opposition. Exactly. The national security law gives the police and security officials powerful tools to constrain the press. And in fact, this piece of legislation is already being used to attack the media. It's most likely that the so-called fake news legislation is even going to do more. Essentially, what we are seeing is that the traditional unfettered news media in Hong Kong is increasingly coming under attack. In essence, this piece of legislation is the reason for the international community to worry. In practice, we will see what comes next. During the past weeks, all eyes have been on Israel and Palestine. Laura, can you tell us about this? You have been following events quite closely. Unfortunately, yes. Israel and Palestine share a past of conflict and violence that dates back even ahead of the very establishment of the State of Israel on Palestinian land in 1948, following World War II. And what happened this time? Well, there's actually a few events that have led to the current state of things. One was definitely on April 13, first day of Ramadan and also Memorial Day in Israel, where Israelis honor who died fighting for the country. What happened was that Israeli policemen raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, one of the holiest sites of Islam, and cut the cables of the speakers that were broadcasting prayers for fear that they would disturb the speech that the Israeli president was about to deliver nearby. Um, and then came the protest for the forced eviction in Sheikh Jarrah, a neighborhood of East Jerusalem, in which for over a decade, Palestinians have been kicked out of their homes, which have been taken over by Jewish settlers. The roots of these legal case dates back to, to actually the 50s and the late 70s, when several settlers' organizations filed lawsuits essentially claiming for themselves the land in which for generations Palestinian families had lived. And the courts that decided on these lawsuits were, of course, Israeli, but under international law, they should have no jurisdiction over occupied territories and the people living there. But this did not stop them from evicting, unlawfully, of course, 28 families in 1956, over 40 people in 2002, now planning on displacing 56 more by August the 1st. So we understand that the Israeli police fired bullets and stun grenades in Al-Aqsa Mosque, and it's been down here from there. Yeah, after that, violence just spread across the country, essentially, in, in the West Bank and especially in Gaza. Hamas started firing rockets over Israel, who on its own end responded with its missiles, bombing towns, cities, residential areas in, in Gaza. 
and as of last Tuesday, 12 people had been killed in Israel, two of whom were children, and around 257 in Gaza, of which 66 were children casualties. Israel has been adamant in specifying that they never targeted civilian houses and that all the rockets have been fired at buildings where members of the militia and Hamas men were hiding, but the result of such, I would say, thorough targeting has caused the uh, destruction of restaurants, schools, media buildings, cars, a lot of healthcare facilities and over 500 homes. And estimates suggest that the damages in Gaza would amount to over $92 million in loss. And many actually worry about how, if ever, Gaza will be able to be rebuilt. Also, electricity lines are down and thousands of Palestinians are without proper supply of drinking water. Laura, can you tell us what has been the reaction of the international community to the situation? Yes, exactly. Water has been down, electricity is being down, food is low, fuel as well, plus this time the international population has has kind of been more careful and more vocal has dedicated more attention to the situation and social media have actually facilitated it so much since it has created a wave of awareness and solidarity that i think was more latent in the past protests were organized across the world many were actually suppressed by governments and the police like in france or germany possibly for fear of backlash or trying to avoid anti-Semitic connotations, taking over the marches, and also a lot more attention was dedicated to national reactions to the situation, especially in the US. It is not a secret, in fact, that the US and Israel share a very tight relationship. Over the Obama presidency, for example, an agreement was reached uh, over a $36 billion funding for the creation of the Iron Dome, which is the defense system created to protect Israel from Hamas missiles. And the US is one of Israel's main weapon sellers overall. Plus, Israel is considered a bulwark of the West in the Middle East, a strategically and favorably placed ally, one that is seen extremely favorably by the American electorate. And earlier this week, the Biden administration also approved a $735 million precision weapon sale to Israel. This bill, though, the Democrats proposed another one to actually stop the sale, right? Although it's actually pretty unlikely that this resolution will effectively stop the sale, but it still sends a strong message. Definitely. That can be good news, but there is so much more that needs to, to change. And despite the several attempts at striking a peace deal, the two factions have struggled to to actually come to an agreement. And at this point in history, the greatest issue, especially with the Palestinians, is simply the recognition of their state. And I would say more problematic is the territorial division, since they aim for a restoration of the borders as they were agreed in, in, in the Oslo Accords in 95. But in the meantime, the Israeli government has carried out an extensive campaign of settlement in the West Bank, forcefully really, on, on one of the areas that should belong to the Palestinian state, and has shown no sign that it will stop anytime soon. This issue is an open violation of international law, and is one of the main points in the ICC investigation opened on war crimes committed by Israel and Hamas as well in Gaza and the occupied territories. Overall, the human rights situation has, has been worrisome for a very long time when it comes to Palestine. And the state 
of institutionalized segregation in the country has actually been compared to a real state of apartheid. And Gaza has been famously known as the largest open-air prison in the world since it's been subject to a land, water and air blockade since 2007. Palestinians are really being oppressed by the Israeli government that is grabbing land and turning these people into a nation of refugees, basically. It's clear that there's great imbalance of power here, with Israel having the most sophisticated military weapons in the world. Yeah, exactly. The imbalance is striking. And recent death tolls have given us one more example of it. The number of casualties on each side is so disproportionate that it actually raises questions and concerns and makes many say, this is not a conflict. This is a giant with guns shooting at a kid that only throws rocks and sticks. Yeah, which actually happened. This also shows the level of imbalance once more. And this still gets portrayed as a conflict, as an actual confrontation between two sorts of equals. Plus, media really contributed in painting a bit of a whitewash situation when it comes to discussing Israel and Palestine. And there is always a lot of concern on the side of who decides to speak out. And we have seen it this time too. Instagram and Twitter have actually taken down posts that were calling out Israel on the eviction issue that we discussed before or siding with Palestinians in recent violence in generally, especially when it came to advocacy groups. But the two companies have blamed it on glitches and technical issues, or at least that is their side of it. Also, general news coverage has been systematically objectifying the situation and creating a sort of illusion that this conflict, uh, for how it's usually called, is between equals, as you said, and it's symmetrical, which is really not. And this creates a void in the information system. It does not allow people to understand what is really going on and, and evaluate by themselves the facts on the ground. Yeah, for sure. This is not making it any easier for the world to really understand the level of oppression and systematic discrimination experienced by Palestinians who don't have the same rights as Israelis but at the same time are not given the chance to build their own nation and live under their own rules. Exactly. And Israel has not been a facilitator of good information over the years at all. Only in the past weeks, Israel bombed the buildings hosting international newsrooms in Gaza where AP, Al Jazeera and many more organizations were based. And also allegations have Israel purposely releasing false information about having men on the ground in, in Gaza to the international press with the aim of pushing members of the militia and Hamas men into the tunnels to gear up, basically, to then actually bomb these tunnels with over 80 tons of explosive. That is a manipulation of media and it's a weaponization of fake news and it essentially undermines information. Now, social media are, in a way, defeating these narratives and granting a more objective and comprehensive coverage of these events by the people that are living what is going on, which could even be determining in, in bringing some peace and resolution to, to the people that have been enduring all this for way too long. But the truth is that the normalization of the Palestinian struggle is so entrenched in the Western perspective and inside the media. And it's taking a lot of voices to, to speak up to change these narratives. Definitely. I think social media has played a pivotal role. Also on Friday, May the 21st, a ceasefire was agreed between the two sides. 
but not too long after the IDF stormed the Alaska Mosque, Turkey has also addressed the situation, defining Israel's intentions as insincere. The latest developments show how fragile the situation in the area still is, and further developments are expected. Yeah, it really is fragile, and I think the resolution to the situation is not as close as we might hope. Yeah, moving to West Papua, the Indonesian military is accused of committing massive human rights violations, such as extrajudicial killing, unlawful arrest, and forced displacements of civilians. Yeah, news coverage of the situation has referred to chaos and war-zone conditions when describing what is going on and testimonies of what is happening and how the president is handling the situation are rather concerning, I would say. They most certainly don't paint a pretty picture. Nigel, please give us more detail. So what we know is that West Papua has been calling for its own independent states from Indonesia since 1965, and Indonesia has been resisting this. However, in the past month, hundreds of Indonesian soldiers have been deployed to West Papua to suppress the Papuan independence, fighters and members of the Free Papua Movement, any succession activist. Yeah, and I've also read of harassment directed at journalists that were reporting on the situation, especially those referring to liberation armies or including their testimonies in their, in their articles. And access to internet has also been cut by the government in, in the province earlier this month. Many allege that it's um, part of an attempt to contain the flow of information regarding operations by the Indonesia security forces. Yes, also two Indonesian military officers have been killed by independence fighters in the Papua uh, as violence continues to flare in the region. The Indonesian president has deployed some 400 troops and the Indonesian authorities have also arrested Papua independence leader Victor Yeimo over accusations of masterminding civil arrest. The situation is pretty hectic. Also, the international community has been accused of overlooking the Papua issue in the past. However, now... Around 83 states are calling for a visit to the region by the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And more than 30 civil society groups, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have called for Mr. Yeimo's release. The Indonesian government has listed all organizations and armed groups in the region as terrorists, which has allowed the government to deploy an Australian-trained elite counterterrorism squad in the area, and this has raised some concerns. Yeah, and many actually worry that the crackdown on elite terrorist protests and the entire population really will intensify and further legitimize the government's heavy hand. So many people have already been accused of being freedom fighters, possibly arrested or killed by the police. Um, do you think this designation will only make things worse? Yes, definitely. But I think we need to keep an eye on the situation to see how things will unfold. Right. Yeah, well, this is all for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. If you found this interesting, please do share it on your social media and remember to tag us. Yeah, and if you want more of this content, visit our website at humanrightspulse.com and check out all of our colleagues' amazing work. And if you have any feedback or stories you would like to hear on our next episode, get in touch. Take care and until next time.